Would you pray with me? My eyes long for your salvation. The unfolding of your word gives light. Lord, would you open our eyes and our ears that we might hear and learn what you have to say to us today. In the name of your Son. Amen. I didn't give you a heads up that I included a section of the gospel passage that follows just after the portion printed in your bulletin, extending it slightly because there is an end, a logical end. You could hear it. Jesus finishes these parables and goes away. And I wanted us to hear the very ending of that. Uh, But also because there is um, another parable that is there for us to consider. We've been hearing the parables of Jesus for the last several weeks. In fact, I meant to say earlier that I'm incredibly grateful to Tony and to James for preaching the last few weeks while I've been away. You heard about the parable of the sower who goes out to sow seed in the field. And then another parable about another sower who sows seed in the field and then there's weeds that come up in the field. Jesus taught in parables and so the church has always listened to his teaching in his parables. At the end of a whole series of parables, we get this final question from Jesus. Have you understood all of these things? And it's probably a little bit foolish that they just say, yeah, we got it all. Whether they understand or not, Jesus is is driving home a question. Do you understand what you're hearing? You can hear, but it requires listening and understanding And to become somebody who understands is to become what he says is a scribe. And we think of the word scribe as somebody who writes most of the time. Uh, But the, the, the word could be better translated a grammarian, maybe, a reader. Somebody who gives attention to words and what they mean and is therefore also able to write. It's as though Jesus is expecting that his disciples would be people who could attend to words and their meaning and give an answer to the question, do you understand this? So I want to think with you for just a second about the purpose of parables and then a few parables. We have like six to consider in this short little reading. Isn't it interesting that Matthew sort of condensed these for us? They must have some relation to one another. Jesus' teaching in parables has a few purposes and they're strangely related to one another. The first of these is obviously that parables help explain things, right? You tell a story about something simple and visible to make some point about something that is not as easy to understand or might be invisible. Consider the ravens, Jesus says. You'll see that God feeds them and takes care of them. And in the same way, you might trust him in the midst of your anxiety and uncertainty about your future or your present situation. But parables also have the purpose of hiding things. And this is a little harder for us to understand. Earlier in Matthew 13, the chapter from which we just read, Jesus is asked the question, why do you speak in parables? And he calls up the ancient prophecy from Isaiah chapter 6 and says, it is like with me as it was with Isaiah, that I've been sent to a people who have ears to hear but will not hear who have eyes to see but cannot see and, in fact, are blind. And something about this cryptic way of speaking makes present this fact that God's speech also brings with it the possibility of God's judgment. 
And these two things, the hiding of the message and the making clear of the message, combine in such a way in this indirect mode of speech that we are sort of teased into the question of do we understand? Have you understood what you're listening to? It means that discipleship in the kingdom of heaven means for us learning to see what is hidden, cultivating our vision to see where and how God is at work in the world and joining him. So I want to think with you a little bit about this vision. Okay, so point number one, as we consider the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, or I wish our translation said yeast because nobody uses the word leaven hardly anymore. They're small things with big effects. I wanted to call this section Size Matters Not because it's a reference to Yoda in the Star Wars thing, but it's actually not really true that size doesn't matter here. Jesus particularly chooses things that are small to make a point. So I have a question for kids in the room. Kids in the room that are old enough to help in the kitchen, raise your hand. Or if you help in the kitchen. Okay, any kids that help in the kitchen, have you ever helped your parents make bread? Yeah, one or two? Shalom. So, okay, so you make bread. What are some things that go into bread? I see Margaret. What's the biggest thing that goes into bread? You can call it out, it's okay. Yeast, flour, what else? You have to have water, otherwise it's just a dry mixture. Yeah, but you can do it with yeast, flour, water, and some salt, yeah. Those are sort of the four basics. But of those, which do you put the least amount of in? It might be salt, but next to salt. The yeast, you just put a little bit of yeast. If you put like a whole several cups of flour to make a loaf of bread, if you put several cups of yeast, it's gonna be disgusting. The yeast is tiny, and in fact the little grains of yeast, the way that we buy them at the store, are even tinier than mustard seeds. The point Jesus seems to be making is that something small makes a huge difference. That outward appearance does not correlate with inward potential. Now I think this is, in many ways, this is an obvious point. Like all of, most of the Disney movies kind of make this point in some way. Like if you think about Aladdin, you seen the Aladdin movie, there's so much more to me than what people can see. You know, there's, like a, there's an obvious truth to it if everybody's making the point everywhere, almost to the point of cliche. And the fact is that self-actualization, the realizing and bringing out into the world of that true value that is within me that maybe others can't see is so much in the water today that it's hard to know how to get it right. I'm not sure that generally we always do that. There's an opportunity for self-absorption as we reflect, as we reflect on it. I think the church, though, is in the danger generally of getting this wrong in the wrong way. Generally, in its story, and I think even in its modern experience now, the church has the danger of seeing what is large and impressive, which is also a way the world still thinks, and prizing that. You can just think of any sort of person who decided to build up a church so large and great that they became corrupt and the whole thing came crashing down and then they made a podcast about it. Um, but, But before that, 
the, the person who's driven this home for me the most, and, and she died a few years ago, is the theologian and, and beautiful spiritual writer Marva Dawn in a little book that she has called Powers, Weakness, and the Tabernacling of God. And that book is really a long exposition of a reflection that Paul has in 2 Corinthians on a dream that he has in which God says to him, I've purposefully given you a situation of pain and suffering and weakness so that you might understand that your power has its limits and that you might see that my power comes to its full and great expression in your weakness. It's a beautiful passage and it's a great book. And there's something about the smallness of the seed and the smallness of the yeast that make her point. God is working in places where there is great smallness. So, are you a small person? Are you a child? Are you somebody without a lot of potential, without a lot of accolades, without as many opportunities of those around you? Paul writes in another place, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Maybe another question. Are you somebody who is great? Are you somebody who is obviously not the mustard seed in the parable? Then there's two more parables for you. The parable of the treasure hidden and the super valuable pearl. I wanted to call it the pearl of great price because that's how it's normally written, but it just sounds a little cheesy. So the super valuable pearl. Two more parables about people who have some means. They've got enough wealth to sell off what they have in order to make an incredibly important purchase. And what matters in the making of that purchase is what they're able to see about the value of what's there. There is something that's incredibly valuable that nobody else in the story, at least for simplicity's sake, sees. There's a treasure that's hidden in a field and only one guy finds it. There's a pearl of great value and only one person is able to discern the value. Everything hinges, it seems, on what they're able to appraise or how they're able to appraise what they see. And it results in drastic action that looks, if I'm honest, a little bit crazy. Do you sell everything you have to go buy a single pearl? Jesus doesn't answer the question of, is the, does the man who goes and sells everything he has to buy the field with the treasure in it, obligated to tell the person for whom he bought it that there was actually a treasure there. <clears throat> the point is just the simplicity that everything seems to be worth giving up for the thing that is valuable. And that thing is not recognized by others. Surely this parable was written down and passed down and handed on for us to draw out the question Are you able to discern in those places around you where there is something that is of great value that is not recognized? The kingdom of God is like somebody who can do this. To be part of the kingdom of God means to have this vision of what could be and then to act. And it may be that the willingness to act is as difficult as the 
attainment of the vision. It's not an easy thing to sell all that you have. Well, this is starting to sound like another saying of Jesus, and follow me. But the point seems to be that it's worth it. A final parable, the dragnet. The great net that is thrown out into the sea and it pulls in all different kinds of fish and then they, can't, they separate them out. And of course, this is in the ancient world, people didn't fish with a line, they fished with a net. And you had to separate the gross fish that you didn't want to eat from the ones that you would like to take home. But Jesus says that this is in fact a parable about a final day, the last day, he says, a day of judgment and discrimination. It's not an easy thing to talk about. It wasn't easy when James preached on it last week about the angels coming and gathering out the weeds and separating them from the wheat. But what Jesus is telling us is that what is hidden in the sea will be brought out and the messy and confusing realities of life will be disambiguated one day. We live in a time in which it is hard to see what is valuable and get it right. It is hard to know whether the mustard seed is just full of potential or whether it's just a grain of sand that's going to get stuck in your shoe and cause you irritation. The question of having vision and being able to see God at work is not easy. But one day there will be clarity. And we will be part of that clarity. We will be disambiguated. And Jesus tells this story, I think, so that the end of all things can frame the middle of all things. That the end can frame the middle. That if we know where we're going, if we know that there will be finally somebody with eyes to see the difference between the good and the not so good, who sifts and judges and rewards and is gracious. And perhaps it frames how we live now. In Romans 8, the passage that James read for us, Paul does something similar. He talks about the great judgment that's coming as though it has already happened, bringing it into the present. Those God has called, he has also justified. It is as though they have already stood before that great throne of judgment and God has given him his, them his blessing. They are his. And therefore he's already glorified them. This is all because he has planned, he has pre-prepared for us to be conformed to the image of his son. So if we're called to see what is hidden and to embody God's strange wisdom in the world by seeking after the places where he is working, how are we to have such kind of vision? I think the only answer can be that it's got to be gift. We're, our eyes are clouded by sin. We are distracted by so many things. We heard this line, I circled it in the psalm here. Turn to me and be gracious to you, to me. This is the psalmist's prayer. As is your way with those who love your name. Those, we, he's, saying, he's saying we know, God, that you are ready to be gracious to those who love you. Solomon asks God in this, this famous prayer, 
Give me wisdom and understanding because I don't know what I'm doing with my life. James 1, in the book of James, the New Testament, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, for he gives graciously to all without finding fault. Jesus himself says, ask and you will receive. We're called to become visionaries with God's vision. May he give us grace as we look around us this week to see where he is at work and to join him. Amen.